I'm David McGee, and this is the Mayo Lab Podcast. Welcome to the Mayo Lab Podcast. Thanks for joining us once again. And as always, a welcome to Alexis Lee. Hello. Hey, Alexis. Uh, I think this is one of my favorite subjects, and I'll tell you why. Because I, as I speak in schools around the country over the past year or two, when I start talking about um, how marijuana has changed, it's not your grandmother's marijuana, it's not your uh, parents' marijuana even, students uh, really begin to perk up because their lives have been so impacted by it. And we dig in on that conversation today. We do. One of our very own at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, Dr. Larry Walker, who's the interim director of the National Center for Cannabis Research and Education and is director emeritus of the National Center for Natural Products Research at the University of Mississippi, which means, David, he spent most of his career in the cannabis area and researching about this stuff. He is an expert like no other. And I'm telling you, for every single parent listening today, you you need to go tell 10 others about this episode because so much has changed. And look, uh, the, the, the marijuana conversation is a complicated one. So the only thing to do, we know there's a lot of medical benefits, uh, but for young developing minds, there are a lot of challenges. The only thing to do is dig in deep with an expert, and that's where we're going right now. Dr. Larry Walker, welcome to the Mayo Lab podcast. Thank you so much, David. It's good to see you again. Always good to see you. And what I, I like a lot of things about you, but I, what I'm, really fascinates me in this moment the most that I think will interest so many parents and educators and others is um, I consider you really a foremost expert in cannabis. And you have uh, years of research in that is related around natural products, including uh, marijuana. And as we, as we, you know, here we are in in an era of where we have legality of medical marijuana and uh, just straight up legal, like in the same way, say, alcohol would be in so many states. And uh, so it's just a changing environment. And really, students, I think, are such at a critical juncture um, because there's so much information, I think, that they don't know. And what I always say is, most every drug that comes to the marketplace legally uh, came for good reason in some medical proven benefits, right? Yes. And I, I think marijuana clearly has some, but I think there is also so many facts that young people don't know that get lost in the message of perhaps impact on the brain. So tell us first a little bit about how you uh, came to uh, get involved in marijuana research, you know? All right. Thank you, David. Yeah, so uh, I went to pharmacy school way back in the uh, ancient era. And uh, when I finished, I really loved pharmacy school. And, and I, when I finished, I was encouraged by some really uh, 
great professors that I had to go to graduate school. And I, I did that and, and kind of launched a research career, I guess you would say, in pharmacology, which is the study of drugs and how they work. Um, a few after I finished my graduate work uh, in a short stint uh, doing some postdoctoral things, I came to Ole Miss and um, just by virtue of the environment at Ole Miss began to develop interest in natural products. They had a lot of research programs there with an emphasis on natural products. And so at first it was more how to understand these plant derived drugs and how they work and can we find new ways they work or new compounds there that uh, and understand how they work. And so at first it was not primarily a cannabis focus, but they had a big marijuana program there. And gradually over the years, I began to get involved with those researchers. Uh, uh, after many years, I became administrator of the National Center for Natural Products Research at Ole Miss, which houses that marijuana program. So at that time, although I wasn't directly involved in the research, I was following closely what others were doing and all of the policy and regulatory and um, public, uh, uh, what would you say, media hype mm -hmm. that has has exploded mm -hmm. about cannabis over the years so i've been observing all of that and trying to trying to uh, uh al align that against what we know research wise what we yeah. know about uh potential benefits potential harms and mm -hmm. as you said there's a there's a, a wealth of information mm -hmm. out there some of it good some of it bad a lot of our young people don't pick up on some of the things probably they should hear about, uh, at right. least in, in my assessment. And they hear a lot from sources maybe that are not so reliable. And, and I think even for parents, it's a bit confusing because in, in this march to legality, what, what often when I speak in schools, uh, I had a student tap me not too long ago. They said, I like that. You're, you're not telling me don't do this. I say, that's your that's your choice, what you do. But I, I say, like, let's not get confused in a march to legality for young minds. I, I tell a, a young young people like, OK, well, alcohol is legal. But if I drank a fifth a day, how functional do you think I would be? Right. Exactly. And, and so like. One one thing that's really interesting, Larry, that that has struck me because the University of Mississippi has been a leader in uh, cannabis research. Uh, what I understand is that data has been collected over the years in testing of potency of street marijuana, THC, and that there is an arc that shows that it is much stronger today than say it was back in 1995. Yes, absolutely. And uh, that's one of the slides I do have. If we want to look at that, I, I can try to share that. But the idea really is that we have since the early 90s, when we've been tracking it, um, the potency running from three or four percent up now to 20, approaching 20 percent. And that's average potency. So that means you have a lot of samples that are much, much higher than that. Wow. Uh, so, so we've got almost a tenfold increase in the uh, potency of marijuana, not to mention other changes that may be going on as we're breeding the plants and selecting them. Uh, other things are changing as well. It's not just THC. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, 
sorry, let me add one thing to that, David. Reaching on back, we know that going back in the 70s, for example, that uh, this was before they began to breed um, cannabis to high potency. And probably it was running 2% okay. for wild mm-hmm. cannabis. And that was back in the days of the marijuana craze and the, mm-hmm. you know, Cheech and Chong yeah. and so forth. Uh, and and um, those were, uh, in those days, that was potent marijuana. <laughs> yes. But it's nothing compared to what we have now. You know, parents, I think, um, I tell a lot of them, you know, this isn't your marijuana. And when I speak mm-hmm. in schools, and for some reason, you know, I don't know, if studies bear this out, but anecdotally, Larry, when I speak in schools, let's say I speak to a student body of a thousand students and I talk about this, I say, Hey folks, you, what you got to understand is this isn't your grandmother's marijuana. It's not even your mother and father's marijuana. It's going to have a different impact on you because it's so potent. And, um, what, what, what I find often after I give that talk is, if students are lining up to talk to me, often it's male students, seems to be more male students anecdotally that are impacted by what I would term as who are coming up to me and saying, wow, I feel so much better now that you said that because I thought something was wrong with me. I, I thought marijuana was not addictive. I thought it was mild and it's ruining my life. I can't get off of it. I keep saying I'll quit. I don't. So two questions. Well, really one question. Is there is there any evidence that, that young males or males are maybe a little more predisposed uh, to marijuana addiction? I, th- I think that's right, David. I don't have statistics about that, but certainly that's the impression I get when I'm speaking. Mm-hmm. And when I talk with people who are working in the addiction field, I think the the problems are much more common with young males. Mm-hmm. I don't know the reasons for that. I mm-hmm. don't know if there's a genetic, you know, some some type of metabolism basis, but it definitely seems to be a bit more uh, prevalent in males. I'm certainly hearing that in schools. I also uh, was at a school just recently, and I'm talking to a nurse practitioner after I've given a talk. And to just emphasize your point about this stronger THC, the nurse practitioner says, you know, we, we, we drug test in our school and we have for years. And I've been here for years. I think she said uh, some 15 years. And she said, just recently, in the past year or two, something strange happened where our test on our uh, on when we're testing have a student testing positive for marijuana the results came back so high suddenly that we contacted the maker of the drug test and we told them their test was broken because we'd never seen anything yeah. like it so yeah. it, you know we're not even at the end of that um tail where where it's getting stronger every day and also Larry, how how that marijuana is used, as you mentioned, we'll go back to this phrase. Back in the T- Cheech and Chong days, it was primarily smoked, I think. And so now, however, there are so many other means where they're extracting more potency even from that stronger marijuana. Yes, absolutely. Uh, a lot of the... Uh uh, dealers and experimenters have gotten very creative uh, with ways to concentrate THC. So, for example, in the plant material, you might have 
getting up to 30% THC, uh, which is exceedingly potent plant material. But often they will distill this, extract it, um, process it so that you may have an oil that's 90 plus percent THC or 95% THC. So that just a, just a, uh, oh, a toothpick dipped in it, you know, gives you a pretty whopping dose, a pretty hefty dose of THC. Wow. And, 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 uh, often, they're finding ways, okay, how do we deliver that concentrate uh, it by inhalation? How do we vaporize it, um, some, somehow volatilize it so we can inje- uh, uh, inhale it quickly? And by that route, you get a very rapid distribution to the brain. And so people who want to abuse it, who want to use it for that reason, can get a quick a quick buzz from that. And very importantly, a naive person who doesn't know what he's doing tries to take it that way. He may have very bad reactions to it because uh, he's not accustomed to that. Hmm. Dr. Walker, let me ask you this. If we're, we're here to educate people. And so in the space of mental health, how does using cannabis marijuana affect different age ranges in their mental health wise? Is there studies that show that affects teens more than adults or what's the risks of mental health in this space? Absolutely. Very important point in the rush that we have to legalization, medical or otherwise. um, Most states have tried to limit exposure to young people and with good reason because teenagers, adolescents, maybe even into early 20s you know experts are debate about this when does the brain actually mature mm-hmm. uh, but definitely young people are much more susceptible to uh, following addiction and mental health problems after chronic marijuana use this has actually been well studied many many different studies around the world it's very well known and it's true for almost any kind of addictive drug that you start early, you really set a pattern that can be uh, devastating. So I talked to you said a you said a word there, addicted. Mm-hmm. I I literally almost fell out of my chair not too long ago when a physician friend of mine, a fantastic doctor, a fantastic enlightened person, told me that marijuana is not addictive. And I think culturally, that's part of where we are. And again, it's not about legal or not legal. I tell everybody when I'm in schools, talking to parents, whatever, I say, I'm completely for legal or not legal. Whatever the research shows is the healthiest and the best way to go, that's what I'm for. But but that still doesn't change the fact alcohol is legal, right? Uh, but it doesn't change this fact of that when misused, there can be health benefits. It doesn't change the fact that it can, particularly for some people, be addictive. Yes, absolutely. And and uh, any of your addiction clinics nowadays that are that are seeing patients, they'll they'll verify this. There may be some 
differences in the propensity of populations to uh, become addicted, but particularly in young people, that percentage is quite high that that they're susceptible to this. And uh, and it it's um, you know it maybe doesn't have the uh, dramatic uh, withdrawal that heroin that a full blown heroin or crack addict might have, but it you still have serious withdrawal symptoms. Mm-hmm. You still have this um, inability uh, on the part of the people who get to that point, inability to shake that without some professional help. So my son, William, uh, who, you know, it's well-known, died of an accidental drug overdose uh, not long after college graduation. Um, I when, when he began using marijuana in high school, middle school and high school, you know, I, I tried to just talk him out of it and I tried to punish him out of it and it didn't really work. And he would just kind of come back to me with a line, this is what everybody's doing. Um, But it's interesting that when he passed away, he'd been in treatment for many months and finding some success, and he kept a journal. And in that journal, he wrote about how he had learned that marijuana was addictive. And it was even more, I think, than, you know, what you're talking about. It may for some not have the physical withdrawals, but for him, he emotionally wrote about not being able to separate it from him because for him, it had become a ritual that he began when he woke up, Mm -hmm. he continued midday and he didn't know how to go to sleep without it. So, um, that's, uh, to be honest, that's what I encounter with a lot of young students I talk to in middle schools and high schools and colleges and universities. It kind of becomes this, this daily part of their life that they feel is harmless, but that harmless thing kind of grows to where over time it kind of takes them over, you know? Can't, can't escape it, yes. Hi, I'm David McGee. Now, more than ever before, parents need better information about the challenges facing their children, what sorts of issues to expect and when, and the warning signs to look for. From anxiety and depression to addiction, eating disorder and loneliness, students and their families are facing a mental health and substance misuse epidemic that requires new guidance. My new book, Things Have Changed, What Every Parent and Educator Should Know About the Student Mental Health and Substance Misuse Crisis, offers a clear roadmap for helping students find the joy they want and deserve. Head over to themayolab.com to sign up for our newsletter and find a link to pre-order my new book. And everyone who signs up for our newsletter and pre-orders a copy of Things Has Changed will receive a digital copy of my expanded student toolbox. Visit themayolab.com today. You are listening to the Mayo Lab Podcast with David McGee. Now, back to the episode. So, so what what does a very what is a high dose of cannabis? I mean, I understand it's probably different for different people. I mean, what are some of the things it does to a mind, particularly a developing brain? I mean, what what happens when that THC hits that brain? What are some of the what are some of the results? All right. Well, so uh, often this depends on the user whether they're experienced or not the route that they're taking it in um the dose that they're taking so let me talk about those a little bit 
a little bit uh, um, separate buckets, if you will. Um, number one, when when a um, when an experienced user smokes even a low potency marijuana cigarette, two percent. If they smoke that cigarette like we did back in the days, not me, but sure. <laughs> my yeah. generation yeah. did. You yeah, know? I get it. If if he smokes that, if he or she smokes that cigarette um, in that fashion, within fifteen to thirty seconds, they'll feel a buzz. Now this is with low potency, mind you. They'll feel a buzz, and typically they will titrate that buzz—a little bit of a euphoria, a little bit of a chill, a little bit of um, uh, maybe relaxation in their minds, maybe stress relief in their minds, uh, and they'll titrate that that um, cigarette to keep that buzz for. Oh, you know, several minutes, and then it will persist for an hour or so. It gradually come back down. Um, with the high potency cigarettes, experienced users will typically um, take just a little puff, and they may pass it around. So now you're getting you're getting you know maybe five, six, eight times. 10 times more THC in a puff. So they do it much more controlled. And But the, the end point is the same. They try to get a little buzz, sustain it for a while, and then it will gradually come back down. Um, if you took that same amount of um, THC orally, um, you won't feel anything for maybe an hour. Uh, in fact, you might not feel anything with that amount of THC, but if you took 10 times more, you, you still might not feel anything for an hour. But after an hour, you, it begins to hit your system much more gradually, much more uh, subtly, you might say. And the danger is with that route that uh, a young person inexperienced might say, well, I didn't feel anything with that. Let me take two more. Well, then then an hour or two later, now they're really um, – stoned or you know they really are beginning to feel the impacts typically chronic marijuana users don't like to take it orally because they don't feel that that immediate buzz that immediate gratification the immediate high that comes with smoking or inhalation but even given orally thc is a really potent drug hmm. And so just a few, uh, you know, uh, let, let, let's, let's think about uh, the prescription drug that's on the market, THC, which cancer patients can get from their doctor when they're doing chemo. They might take a five milligram capsule four times a day. So 20 milligrams a day. Um, that, if they go above that, They'll have a lot of side effects, a lot of dizziness, maybe stumbling, maybe a fall, maybe a fall risk. Um, so you'll begin to feel side effects. Well, so a lot of times if you go out and buy a brownie out in the, uh, you know, quote, medical marijuana mm -hmm. market, you know, you've got 40, 50 milligrams of THC in there. So you've got a high, high dose of THC compared to what's there mm -hmm. in the medical uh, prescription marketplace. Mm -hmm. So 
whenever people talk about, oh, it, it, it does this or it doesn't do that, when our medical marijuana folks were coming, legalization folks were trying to to visit with us and 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 uh, talk about the need for this, uh, we just asked a simple question: What dose? What route of administration? But they hadn't really thought about that. Hmm. They they just well just marijuana, you right, know. Right. But it's quite different depending on how you use it, in what form, what dose, what purity. Uh, how has it been prepared? So, so there are many um, complexities about this, and that's why in many states so far the research—it's early, right? It's early in the process, but some of the research I've seen so far suggests that in states where there is still there's some legalization, street marijuana is still predominant. Um, and I think you just spoke to—we can just quickly assume why is there's a difference probably in potency that's substantial, right? And, uh, you know, I, I talked to a young man uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he said, I don't like marijuana. I'm tired of it. It's been in my life too long. I, it, when I use it now, I've, I've gone up as is, is potent as I can get it. When I use it now, all I'm getting is a little tingly. It's not even doing the same thing that it once did, but I don't know how to stop. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. that, but, but the potency, you know, it, it, it it keeps going up, but for some users that have been in it years and years, they're still hitting their wall. That's that's exactly right, and and it's um, it, you know it varies from one person to another where that wall is, you know, and that probably has to do with the biology that's associated with uh, the response to cannabis. That may vary in some people depending on genetics or other drugs they're taking or other conditions they may have. So when we talk about medical marijuana, what are, what are, you know, there are some proven benefits for some people. It it may be like, say a late stage cancer patient might get some help with nausea. I think that's one perhaps. I mean, what are some medical, what are some uh, bona fide medical benefits uh, that people uh, might find in medical marijuana? Well, so on the on the prescription drug front, what has been approved so far for uh, chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting for uh, wasting syndrome in patients with AIDS, so it stimulates your appetite, uh, and so that's a legitimate uh, approved medical use. Um, in other countries around the world, there are uh, cannabis uh, THC products approved for um, multiple sclerosis to help improve, relieve spasticity and pain with multiple sclerosis. Um, and and there, are, there are a number of other potentially mm-hmm. uh, legitimate medical uses, but in, in most of the other cases, we don't have this worked out about what doses does it take, how often, you know, uh, how does it work with other drugs the patient might be on. In the medical marijuana world, you have a completely different ballgame because typically states will approve maybe 50 or more different uses or maybe use for anything you want to use it for. And um, and I, I firmly believe that there are one day we'll have legitimate mm-hmm. ways to use cannabis-derived drugs for some of those conditions, not all of them. You know, in the in the uh, herbal medicine world, 
uh, a lot of people, you know, they'll have a, their favorite herbal product and it's good for everything. You know, it's good. It cures this and it helps that. And it, well, drugs don't work like that. You know, they're not good for everything and marijuana is not good for everything, but there are probably some legitimate uses. We just need to understand what are we doing in medical marijuana programs? Are we, are we, do we have good medical or health professional oversight? Do we know what we're dosing? Do we know what we're giving the patients? Are we monitoring the outcomes? Are we monitoring if this is improving or if there are side effects or abuse problems or addiction problems? Are we monitoring those? Well, in most cases, the answer is no. Mm -hmm. It's just, uh, it's a business. And mm -hmm. medical marijuana programs are set up for cannabis companies to make mm -hmm. money. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times the medical um, oversight is fairly limited. It's, it's there, mm -hmm. but it's, it's fairly limited. And the range of products is very wide and very variable. And, um, you know, so uh, it, some states have better programs than others. And I will say that in the, in the Mississippi mm -hmm. program, one strength that they do have is that they do require really rigorous testing uh, so that you have to label what's there and you have to have an independent verification that that's what's there. So that is a plus, but there's still very little mm -hmm. guidance about dosing and um, management of patients with this condition or that condition. Very little. Um, one of the things we're trying to do is see if we can set up a program to uh, voluntarily have patients uh, allow outcomes to be monitored so we can understand did you get improvement with what wow. with what preparation with what dose did you have some side effect some problem what was it that caused that and if we can match that to the label and know you know what they were taking maybe we can begin to sort out some of these mm -hmm. benefits and risks but for most programs medical marijuana programs it's it's really hard to mm -hmm. do that and for ours it's hard to do it but we're hoping to get some info on it wow Do, um, dr walker i know you have there's a study in the slides that you sent about um marijuana dependence and the disorders yeah. that come with that can you talk about specific disorders and what that looks like versus the general population yeah, so uh, a number of studies have shown now that especially with um, with teens who are chronic marijuana users, that the incidence of all kinds of mental health and mood disorders are exaggerated, two, threefold, maybe sometimes more. Um, these may range from depression, uh, addiction problems, um, uh, aggression, uh, other types of mood disorders. There's even uh, good evidence now that marijuana use is associated with schizophrenia. The frequency of schizophrenia is much higher with chronic use. This has been debated a lot, whether that's causal or whether it goes along somehow with the propensity to use marijuana. Mm -hmm. But some recent studies are suggesting that it may actually, with early users, early chronic users, it may actually exaggerate problems with schizophrenia down the road. Um, I'm not a, a mental health expert in any fashion, but these studies have come from well-run, well-designed studies uh, mm -hmm. from the, you know, different 
institutes with the federal government and other countries around the world. Um, one interesting study in New Zealand has been going on for 50 years, I guess, where they are just monitoring um, multiple lifestyle uh, issues, including marijuana and alcohol use, but monitoring it from childhood in a huge number of, mm -hmm. of um well, adults now, but when they started, they were uh, children or adolescents, and just monitoring how did they progress in their social life, in their education, in their economic progress, uh, in their mental health. How did they progress if they were heavy marijuana users versus not? And it was quite, it's really quite striking that the heavy users, especially if they started young, they make less money, they have more family problems, they have more addiction problems, they have more societal adjustment problems, mm -hmm. the, all kinds of things that are difficult to quantify if you don't have a study like, I mean, yeah. you, you wouldn't pick it up in one or two people that you might know, but if you quantify this, measure this over a period of time in large numbers of people, you can see these things, uh, even IQ tests, the, the ones that were users performed worse on IQ tests. Um, and so th this is very intriguing studies and alarming studies, I think, that that uh, particularly point us toward caution with young right. people. Exactly. And that what you just talked about, and he, my, he's not going to mind me sharing this, but I have the anecdotal study of that New Zealand one. Uh, my son Hudson, who's now uh, more than a decade sober, um, he, he allows me to share his story. And he began using marijuana regularly in late in middle school and continued through high school on a habitual basis. And it's interesting that when he decided to stop in college, um, two things happened. One, we began to get to know him in a way we never knew him before. And we, we used to joke that he matured in dog years before our eyes because it may be there, there's some, uh, you know, that maturation, maturation process is put on hold in, in emotional and development in some ways. And then particularly around money, um, he wasn't good with money before. Now he's great with it. And almost overnight, he became great with it. He was hungrier to make it. He held on to it and managed it better. And so I've seen that anecdotal study, and I've actually heard him counsel other student young people about that because he experienced it uh and also and yeah. also yeah well. you know i mean i've seen it real time but also larry uh the it, it's interesting when you talk about the um you know there are some medical benefits but there's just a lot of misinformation for example one is and i encounter this with a lot of parents and they'll say to me i don't like it that my young student my teen is habitually using marijuana but, you know, they suffer from anxiety, and I know it's good for anxiety, so I just kind of look the other way instead of going to get them treatment. However, I've seen studies that show that for some people, depending on personality type and depending on the strain of cannabis they're using, that for probably 50% of the people, it not only doesn't reduce their anxiety, it may exacerbate it greatly. A, have you heard that? And B, if that's true, how do we, what do we do to get that word to parents? 
Yeah, that's it's it's absolutely true. I don't know what the numbers are, but there are an, uh, a lot of people that have when they were first exposed to cannabis, they may have actually an anxiety reaction that that is um it's it's it um you know, their, their reaction is negative. They say, I don't like it. A lot of people, you may have heard people like this. I don't like marijuana because they had that kind of anxiogenic reaction, uh, when they first smoked it and it could have been dose. It could have been their genetics. There may be other factors, but it's definitely true. And actually the, the data on THC for treating anxiety is not very good uh it's better for some other Mm -hmm. things than it is for treating anxiety however many there are many who swear by it you know that that's their uh, they that's their go-to uh valium i guess you might Mm -hmm. say if you had a room full of parents you were speaking to in essence we do on the mayo lab podcast and some parent raises their hand and go, you know, I don't really know what to do, but but for a teenager, if I would you recommend knowing what you know, Larry, if this is if I'm a parent and I'm asking you for advice, is it okay for my teen to use marijuana or not? Not that I have full control, but I might I might get them into counseling more quickly or maybe even treatment if I really understood. Is marijuana for a young person something you would recommend or no? Absolutely not. In fact, I I really think we need to um, we need to sound this alarm uh, more broadly in schools. I, I know you can't always stop what your kid what what teenagers are going to do, but they don't need the message coming from adults. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. oh this is going to be okay. I, I don't know if I shared this story with you before, but uh, in Colorado, when they first uh, legalized medical marijuana, it was on a um, doctor-to-patient basis. In other words, the doctor would say, "I want you to use this strength or whatever," and go to this clinic and you can get it. So it was just a doctor patient thing. And they left, they left alone the uh, public marketing, you might say. And uh, it did pretty well. It, 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 it was actually a well-received program, I think without a lot of negative impact, at least that was well, that was um, uh, easily observed, but then they, went to opening the dispensary so you could go and buy what you wanted to on every corner. Well, then the problems in the schools begin to begin to rise and the ER admissions begin to rise with young people because the perception is, well, it's legal. It's there on the corner. I can buy it easier than I can buy alcohol. Uh, it must be okay. What's the harm? Uh, my point is that was long winded, but my point is that perception drives young people, drives usage up in young people. The perception mm-hmm. that it's safe, it can't be that bad. It's been approved for medical purposes. I got a card. It it mm-hmm. it it makes them uh, feel like that there are no consequences to it. Uh, in in our public campaigns our public we we don't need to lie we don't need right. to over dramatize about the dangers but we need to 
educate parents, teachers, um, our, our organizations that are promoting health and wellness. We need to advertise it. I think that uh, I, I'm not recommending it for anyone, but especially for young right. people. Uh, mm-hmm. there, there are dangers that we, we may be, um, actually, I, 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 again, I, I don't want to overhype this, but in some animal studies, you treat young animals with, with cannabis, with THC, you permanently change their brain. I mean, permanently, it will not recover. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of times those are high doses and we don't know exactly how to translate this into humans. But I think there's enough enough uh, signal there. Uh, we know, excuse me, we know enough that drugs of abuse in young people change the way your brain develops. Yes. And this is just too risky for us to play with for some modest medical potential medical benefit in young people or for just for, uh, you know, all my friends are doing it. That's great stuff. Uh... Dr. Larry Walker, thank you for joining us on the Mayo Lab podcast. Such important information about a topic that I think most every family of young people will face either with their children or their friends at one time or another. Just wonderful information, and I appreciate you joining us so much. Thank you, David, and thank you. Thank you all for all your work. Uh, Very, very commendable and and much needed thank you thank you so much thank you for joining us on this episode of the mayo lab podcast the mayo lab podcast is produced by dr natasha jeter dr megan rosenthal david mcgee alexis lee and slade lewis This podcast was recorded at Broadcast Studio in Oxford, Mississippi. The show was mixed and mastered by Clay Jones, and our original music was composed by Slade Lewis. The Mayo Lab podcast is brought to you by the William McGee Institute for Student Wellbeing. For more information on the Mayo Lab, head over to themayolab.com and follow us on social media at the Mayo Lab. If you enjoyed listening to the Mayo Lab podcast with David McGee, we need your help. Tell others about it. And we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this podcast. This podcast represents the opinions of David McGee and guests of the show. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for the medical advice of a licensed counselor or physician. The listener should consult with their mental health professional in any matters relating to his or her health or the health of a child.